The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, those of you who've been coming, I know that we finished a talk, the talks and discussion on delusion, not seeing things clearly the last three weeks. And uh, starting next week, we're going to pick up uh, the next chapter in Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart, on, what is it, suffering and letting go, I think, chapter 16. But tonight I thought we'd do a practice refresher, just to look at sitting meditation practice, try to understand it a little bit more clearly. I personally find that, although I've been sitting now for almost 30 years, um, like I feel very comfortable being a beginner with it. It is clearly, it's a simple practice, but it is clearly not easy to train the mind. The mind is in the habit of distraction, in the habit of not being connected with present moment reality. Basically, we live lost in thoughts most of the time. So we want to take a really vast, view to this training that we're doing, really patient, willing to begin again. And it's really important from time to time to refresh our understanding. We should be able in any sit in the midst of confusion, reactivity, we should be able to articulate to ourselves what the heck we're doing. Because if we can't, you can bet we're just going to go with the biggest habit that happens to arise in that moment, you know, which is, I should really think about what I'm going to do tomorrow, or why did I say that to that person? And there we, then we're gone, you know, and that can be the whole sit once we forget what, what it is that we're doing. It's not terrible to forget and get lost in thought, but if it becomes a habit, then we're not really learning anything. And that actually is a bit of a tragedy, or not a bit of a tra- It is a tragedy to live a life and not to learn anything about the nature of life itself. So we're just repeating the patterns, or basically we're no wiser than the culture that trained us. <laughs> it doesn't take much reflection to be embarrassed about that prospect. <laughs> you know, to be no wiser than the, culture, the mainstream cultural values, which, you know, of course, are all about distraction, all about greed, and all about aversion. So I don't think anybody would wish this upon themselves or another. So I'll say a few things about just reviewing some of the basic instructions of meditation practice, but I'll save some time. It would be really nice to hear from people sort of like a group confessional about what happens when we sit. And it's like when we speak up and share, it normalizes how challenging it is, in moments how beautiful and insightful it is, how difficult and painful even it is. That's really nice to hear. So I'll save some time for that. And what I'd like to do is just talk, talk about a few aspects of meditation practice. In... Um, the Buddha's Eightfold Path, we describe the spiritual life in terms of the cultivation, development of wisdom, 
and wise intention, and right livelihood, and right action, and right speech. And then the, the last section includes three parts of the path, the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this is just a nice way <coughs> to think about what we do when we engage in sitting meditation. It's also not, you can use it for daily life practice and walking meditation too, but I'll talk about it in terms of sitting meditation practice. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. One of the things that hopefully we immediately think of when we think about mindfulness or we think about this path of awakening, if you know something about this path that the Buddha taught, hopefully one of the first things first things that come to mind is this value of clarity, seeing things clearly. In fact, this is a good response. If anybody asks you why you're interested in Buddhism or why you're interested in mindfulness meditation, it's very appropriate to say, I'd like to be more clear in my life. I have, I've, you know, I've found this value of clarity and I'm going to do whatever I can to sort of support this value that I have. Just like if, you know, hopefully we have this value of being truthful. And then it's not enough to have the value. If it's really a value, then we go to work with it. Like we pay attention to the places in our life where we compromise the truth, where we justify not being 100% truthful. And we acknowledge the places where we are being really honest and truthful. We sort of derive some strength and inspiration from those places in order to look at the places where we're, we're not so honest. And the same thing with clarity. And it's, it's interesting, you know, there's, we could say that the lack of clarity is synonymous with distraction. And this is really what mindfulness is about. You know, when people ask us, well, what is mindfulness? What do we mean, mindfulness meditation? Well, mindfulness has a sense of remembering that there is something happening. There is something being known. But are we aware, are we awake to what's being known? And that's the difference between, you know, we, and we use these words loosely, but we could say, you know, I'm conscious. You know, because as long as we're alive, in a sense, we're conscious, you know, if we're not in a coma or something. But are we aware of what's being known? There's knowing, there's consciousness, there's sensitivity, but is there an awareness, oh, this is what's being felt, this is what's being thought, this is what's being known. So that's a good definition of mindfulness. It's remembering that this is being known now. This is the experience being known. Do you understand that distinction? It's not quite self-consciousness, but it's that sense, that recognition. It's really a discernment. So the mind is discerning that awareness is happening, that experience is being known. It hasn't forgotten this. Now, when we look back on today, you know, there are probably large parts of the day where 
we were a sensitive human being, but we weren't aware that we were sensitive when we were sensitive. We weren't aware of what was being known. So to cultivate mindfulness, it's really about cultivating this remembering of the present moment. And I think it really arises out of a respect. We respect the present moment. We respect, you know, this moment of sensitivity. And the thing about mindfulness, and I mentioned this in the sit a couple times, I think, that it has to be active. It's not enough to be mindful and then, okay, we can rest on our laurels. I was mindful. But it's not enough to do it in one moment because that's just in that moment. Just to remember in this moment this is being known doesn't help us in the next moment because there's something else that can be known in this next moment that's different. Nothing repeats itself. Nothing is static. So mindfulness has to it has this moment-by-moment uh, moment quality. So when we commit to the present moment, we commit to what some of you know, Sharon Salzberg, who's a well-known Vipassana or insight meditation teacher in this country and has written a number of wonderful books on Buddhist mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice or insight practice. And uh, she talks about the torment of continuity. Because in this sense, mindfulness is so demanding to be moment by moment, to remember, oh, it's like this now. This is being known. So mindfulness is a real commitment to the present moment and a commitment to the ongoingness of the present moment. You know, it's like to be mindful, to be awake, to remember this is being known moment by moment by moment by moment. And of course, the object doesn't really matter. And this is really important in practice because a lot of the instructions you get, like even tonight, first I suggested you direct your attention to hearing, then I suggested you direct your attention to different places in the body, and then I suggested you continue being aware of the whole body or what's predominant or specifically with the breath moving in the body. So it's easy to get confused and to think that the practice is about that particular object that we've directed the attention to. But it's really about the present moment. It's about that ongoing connection, remembering of the present moment. And the object is just a means toward that ongoing connection with the present moment. So we use the breath, we use sensation, we use sound, we use seeing, moving, if we're doing a walking meditation, to reconnect with the present moment and with the intention of understanding the nature of the present moment. Not so much the nature of the present moment in terms of the specific characteristics, like how this particular breath or this particular part of the in-breath is as opposed to the previous part of the in-breath or the next part of the in-breath. So even though we're, we're focusing, so to speak, on the details, on, you know, feeling the touching at the tip of the nostrils if you're feeling your breath here or 
feeling the belly rise with the in-breath, feeling the belly contract or fall down with the out-breath. But what we're really doing is we're understanding the present moment. We're connecting fully, completely with the present moment. We're really understanding some of the universal truths of the present moment. We're waking up to that. So in this sense, the particular object is much less important than the kind of attitude, the quality of the mind that's knowing the present moment, that's knowing the breath, or knowing sound, or knowing uh, smell, or knowing thought, knowing emotion. What allows for insight is when there's a connection with the present moment, and that connection depends not so much on the object, because actually any object will do. We can have, a human being can have powerfully deep insight with any particular experience being known. You can have it reaching for the sugar for your coffee. You can have it blowing your nose. You can have it breathing in, breathing out. You can have it in a moment of seeing another human being and feeling love for them or seeing another human being and feeling hate for them. Any of those moments of experience are sufficient for deep, penetrating insight. What really matters more than the particular object is the quality of the mind. So I want to talk about effort a little bit because it makes sense, I hope, that wrong effort affects the attitude, you know, the quality of the mind. So much of the whole path of practice is getting a sense of what right effort is. So again, mindfulness is just that simple connecting with the present moment. Now, like I said, we may think we're already connecting with the present moment, but are we aware that we're connecting in this moment? This is being known. This is how it is, moment by moment. So that's mindfulness. Effort is the kind of, it has to do, to some degree at least, with the kind of attitude, the kind of the mind, the qualities of the mind, rather, that are connecting. You know, like a mind that's tight, because we can connect with a tight mind, we can connect with a sloppy mind, we can connect with a clear mind or a dull mind, a greedy mind, like really trying to get something by connecting with the present moment, an aversive mind, you know, trying to make a point, trying to push something away, trying to get even in connecting with the present moment. And we'll find, you know, the more we look, and just, first of all, just to be able to recognize that there isn't just the object that's being known, but there's the mind that's knowing the object. It's like, oh my God, it's hard enough to know the object that's being known in the present moment, but to know the mind that's knowing the object That's really hard. It seems really hard. But the thing is, it's all the present moment. It's not like over here is the mind that's knowing the present moment, and over here is the object that's being known, right? It's just an experience we're having. It's just one thing. So in that one thing, it's just like learning to recognize different aspects. Like if you look at me, you can notice the shape of my body. You can notice the color of of the shirt I'm wearing. So you can notice different things. 
about this experience of, you know, seeing me. Just in the, it's just on the level of seeing. There's shape, there's color. So it's the same thing with any present moment. There's the object, and there's the mind that's knowing it, the way the mind is relating to it, or the, you could say, the attitude. The attitude of the mind that's knowing. And actually, this we find out through you know a lot of practice, and it's kind of nice to get it pointed out that this is actually more important. But it doesn't mean we should give up like having a specific training. So when we sit down and do our formal meditation practice, we don't want to necessarily give up on being mindful of the breath. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm with the breath, or if I'm with sensations, or I'm with looking around the room, or walking out of the room for that matter. Because when we give ourselves a particular object, it just simplifies the whole experience. And it makes it easier to notice the mind that's doing the knowing. But if we're just out in our daily life and think, well, why bother with the formal sitting practice? Because the objects don't matter. I can just pay attention. You know, I can be mindful of the mind that's knowing out in the world. But it's a lot harder. What I generally recommend for people in sitting practice, if, you know, if you haven't sort of found your own way, what works for you, is at the beginning of a sit, let's say you're sitting for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, you know, initially take some time to settle. Make that a formal part of, what, of your sitting practice so you don't just rush in. But you're using simple techniques to help settle, to help relax, to feel stable in the body and the mind. And then once there's some stability and basic comfort, then to give the mind something really simple to be aware of, like the breath. And generally to choose something that your mind likes well enough. Hearing, the breath and the body, sensations generally, just the feeling of being upright in the sitting posture, something like that. And then you could call that an anchor or a training ground. And then you can practice that knowing what's being known. So when the breath is coming in, knowing the breath is coming in. And you can even use that label, breathing in is being known. And so from time to time, you can actually say that phrase in your mind. If that's your object, if you're training with generally sensations in your body, then you could just say something like, sitting is being known. And you can really emphasize that is being known. So we're emphasizing that the mind is knowing more than what it's knowing. And that makes it easier then to begin to see the qualities of the mind that's knowing, the attitude of the mind that's knowing. So just think if you haven't done this before, you don't have to do it continuously, like every few seconds, but you might want to do it at least several times every sit, if not more regularly than that, where you, you just name what's being known as a way of emphasizing is being known. And the same with distraction. So let's say you, you've decided that breathing is your primary training ground or your anchor for this first part of your set, maybe the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes, and I'll suggest what you can do at the very end of your sit in a moment. And then, you know, you're going to be 
you know, just aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, either feeling it maybe in the belly or at the nostrils or anywhere where the breath is clear. And then from time to time, just acknowledge, oh, breathing in is being known. So you like, wow, this is being known. Like really acknowledging that. Breathing out is being known. Breathing in is being known. And you can drop the phrase and just be same practice, but now you're not asking the mind to name it in that way. And then when you're distracted, you can even do that from time to time. Sometimes distractions are pretty weak, and then as soon as you notice it, it's best just to come back to the primary anchor. Sometimes distractions are a little bit more seductive. It's not so easy for the attention to let go. So then in in those moments, then you can say, oh, distraction is being known. Or you can be more specific. Judging is being known. Worrying is being known. Planning is being known. Now, you're not for or against the planning or the distraction. You just acknowledge that right now, this activity, this mental activity, if that's what it is, or if it's pain in the knee, then you know that physical, these physical sensations are being known. So again, we're acknowledging the mind that's knowing the present moment object, whether it's a distraction or the primary training ground, the primary anchor of the breath. So that's the work we do, you know. And it doesn't matter if we've gotten lost in thought because that's just how it is. But it's and there's nothing we can do while we're lost in thought, right? Because if we're really lost in thought, we're not aware that we're lost in thought. That's what it means to be lost in thought. As soon as you know you're lost in thought, you're not lost in thought anymore. That's a moment of mindfulness. You can't know you're lost in thought without being mindful. So don't be disappointed in that moment. You should be happy in that moment, right? Oh, being distracted is like this. Thinking is like this. That's You're right back on track in that moment. Thinking is like this. Thinking is being known. So, and then if there is judgment, just out of habit, then just acknowledge that. Oh, judging's like this. Judging's being known. Coming back to the breath, as long as that that whole action of distraction has sort of maybe lost its momentum, so then you come back to the breath. Feel the body sitting. Feel the breath moving in the body. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. And then at some point, you know, and it really, there's no right or wrong place, but the general instruction would be when, as long as uh, your sense of stability and calm is not so developed or stable, then continue with this first, these first set of instructions, as I've just finished uh, talking about. That if your samadhi, your concentration, the sense of stability seems pretty good, feeling relatively calm, relatively clear, relatively quick at noticing what's being known, then practice for some amount of time in your sit. could be the last three minutes, could be the last 15 minutes, something like that, just depending on your day. If you have really good concentration, it could be more of your time. If your concentration is not so good that day, then don't spend so much time doing the second part. But the second part, like we did briefly tonight, is what you would call open attention. So now you're not directing your attention to a particular training ground. Any object will do. 
And so you can just even have that phrase ready to stay in your mind as you make this transition. Honey, any object will do now. Now your attention may still come to your primary training ground because now it's sort of a good habit, isn't it? You know, especially if you've been doing it for years. But that's okay. But you're not intentionally directing your attention to your breath or to your primary meditation object. So whatever arises that is predominant in the moment, naturally the attention is going to know that. And then your job is to know that the attention is knowing that. That's the meditator's job, to know that this is being known. And as you get more skillful, to know the quality of the mind that's knowing. Is it tight or is it relaxed? I mean, that's the easiest distinction to make. And then there's all many, many more nuances once the attention is more refined. But just to know that the, this, this particular present moment object is being known and to know whether the mind is tight or relaxed, the mind that's knowing it. Is it tight or relaxed? You know, tight because it's greedy, tight because it's impatient or aversive. Is it clear or is it dull? Or is it restless? You know, too much energy, too little energy, just the right amount of energy. Is the mind in balance or out of balance? So these are just some uh, questions that you can, you know, to, in order to discern the attitude, the qualities of the mind, you could just ask some of these things like tight or relaxed, balanced or imbalanced, greedy, aversive, kind, accepting. So you're just getting, you know, you should have a handful of different qualities because when you're there knowing the breath coming in, the breath is going out and it's being known, and then you remember this practice instruction, oh, check the attitude, Mark, you know, and you just look. Then just knowing this, the different qualities that sometimes do color the mind, it will really help illuminate what, if anything, is coloring the mind in that moment. Does that make sense? So you can just, like if it's not clear, and initially it won't be clear, it's not easy. It's like seeing something we're not used to seeing. Like if you're not a, a bird watcher, and you go out into the woods with a bird watcher, you know, you'll be seeing lots of things, but you won't, because you haven't trained your eye to see those birds in the trees. And certainly haven't trained yourself to be able to distinguish a robin from a wren or something like that. And it's the same thing as we're looking at the different qualities in the mind. We're just not used to seeing, is that aversion? Is that greediness? Is that too much energy or too little energy? You know, is it despair? Or is it just sleepiness? But the more we're interested in the qualities of the mind, the more quickly we'll notice it. Now, we're not noticing the different qualities of the mind in order to fix the mind, or to judge the mind. It's right back to that initial instruction of mindfulness. Mindfulness just wants to connect with the way that it is. It wants to know what's happening. So our work here in noticing the attitude is just the desire, the wholesome desire, to want to know how the mind is. Because remember, the whole practice is about getting to know the mind. We live with this mind all the time. It affects everything we experience. It affects 
it is the co-creator of our reality, our mind, right? But we haven't really gotten that interested in it. We're too obsessed with external conditions, totally focused on our sense objects. So now we're getting interested in the mind that knows. It's really uh, a unique teaching from the Buddhist tradition. The uh, essential need to awaken to the mind that knows. It transforms our relationship to life completely. And it's the not understanding of the mind that leads to all all kinds of problems. Because we take... Well, I'll, I'll just leave it there so we have time. So we've talked about mindfulness. Now the effort in practice is really the effort to... Uh, once we see the different attitudes in the mind, it's like the effort to recognize them as being helpful or not being helpful. And if something is not helpful, let's say we see we're really greedy, we're trying to get something from our meditation, we're trying to get concentrated or something like that, then the effort is to experiment to see how can we, how can we set in motion a more wholesome attitude. What can be done? What makes things worse? Like judging myself for being greedy, does that work? No, it just adds another layer of distortion, another layer of tension in the mind that knows. So what actually helps correct the balance when the mind is out of balance? That's what effort is. So effort is noticing we have to be mindful first of what is skillful or unskillful, what's working in the mind, what's not working, what's contributing to clarity and understanding and what's getting in the way of clarity and understanding. And then we have to, we're basically learning cause and effect. What helps? If we're trying too hard, relaxing helps. If we're being too lazy, Making more effort helps. Making having a stronger intention to like see clearly, to remember, to not forget, to start over again. But we have to notice what's off before we can make right effort. And then concentration is just that continuity. You know, when we can, when mindfulness knows the object knows the object is being known, right? So first mindfulness is just knowing the touching as the air comes in, or knowing the hearing as the sound is being heard. And then we train mindfulness to know the mind that's knowing, right? To know these qualities. And that allows for skillful effort, for right effort. Because now we can practice bringing the mind into balance. And the more we practice, the more we get the lay of the land. Like what kind of effort is not useful and what kind of effort is useful. And as I was about to say a couple of minutes ago, you know, so much of the path is understanding what right effort is. So many people come to meditation practice and they try really hard, but their effort is wrong effort. It's coming out of greed or it's coming out of aversion. Like 
I hate my crazy mind, and I'll do anything to get rid of it. You know, and so that's their attitude. But what they do then is they practice aversion. They're sitting, practicing aversion. I hate this mind. I want it to go away. Well, aversion is a toxic emotion, a toxic quality. It distorts and disturbs the mind. We're not going to get anywhere with that. Same thing, you read a book talking about exalted meditation states, and you come to practice and you just want those beautiful states of mind. And we get really greedy. So we should just assume that we are our practice is colored by greed and aversion. This is from Sayada Utejaniya's new book called Dhamma Everywhere. Dhamma is the word for the way it is. When we practice with wanting or expectations, we are practicing with greed. When we practice with dissatisfaction and discontent, we are meditating with aversion. When we are practicing without having a real understanding of what we are doing, we are meditating with delusion. If we're meditating with aversion or greed or delusion, we are reinforcing those patterns in the mind. We're doing exactly opposite of what we want to do. So it's not quite correct. Like sometimes we say things like, well, it doesn't matter if your meditation isn't any good, you know, because it's the thought that counts. Or, you know, it will eventually bear fruit. But in this kind of work, what bears fruit is the attitude with which we're doing the work. And this is true not just in terms of your meditation practice. If you're doing service out in the world to make the world a better place, but you're doing it out of greed or delusion or aversion, you may do some good in a sort of local sense, but what you're really doing is you're setting in motion greed, anger, and delusion in the world. So this is, a again, a, a pretty unique perspective in Buddhism, at least really emphasized in Buddhism, that intention, motivation really matters. And that's especially true with meditation practice. So that's why it's especially important at the beginning of the set to take some time to clarify your motivation. So as you're settling, you just remember that uh, one beautiful motivation you can connect with is, and I mentioned this earlier, it's just this intention to want to understand the mind. Like we live with this mind. And that's a very wholesome intention. It doesn't need to be infused fused with greed or aversion or delusion. Just a deep wish to want to know the mind. Another really wholesome intention, motivation, is compassion. Like, I notice I make a lot of mistakes and that causes me and others harm. So I really care about this life and I care about this mind that's so central. So I'm going to cultivate this practice out of compassion for myself and all the people I harm because my mind is out of control, you know, some of the time at least. So there are beautiful motivations that we can tap into to do this practice. And that's really this work of right effort is understanding uh, the effects of our attitude. What is it setting in motion? And then what can I do about it? How can I abandon unwholesome qualities in the mind, unwholesome attitudes? How can I cultivate wholesome attitudes? If we're being mindful, we'll have, initially we'll have some sense, right? Because 
being mindful, remember I said mindfulness is moment by moment. So when we're mindful moment by moment, we see cause and effect. So if we're being mindful moment by moment and we know we're greedy, then we are seeing clearly the negative effect of greediness. If we're not, either we're not greedy, right, or we're not paying attention. Because greediness, by definition, is leads to negative results. It leads to stress or tension in the mind. That's what we mean by the word greediness. That tightness, that narrowness of mind. So mindfulness really reveals what works and doesn't work. And so effort then takes what mindfulness has revealed and takes action accordingly. I've seen that this attitude works. So I see it here. It's not very well developed, but I'm going to focus on it. I'm going to notice patience. And by noticing patience, it gets strengthened. I'm not going to feed impatience. You know, by getting identified with the feeling, the attitude of impatience, it gets stronger. It becomes basically who we are. But by ignoring impatience and instead tuning into patience, impatience dies. It starves through lack of attention and patience develops. It becomes more of a force in the mind. The Buddha actually uses this description of feeding and starving the hindrances by greediness or aversion. We feed aversion by identifying with it and we starve aversion by not paying attention to it. We don't starve aversion by hating it. That's being aversive. <laughs> so it's really important. That's what right effort is. It's Right effort is skillful. It skillfully abandons what doesn't help and it skillfully cultivates what does help. And then concentration in a way that that beautiful balance, it really comes from the work of mindfulness, which is connecting with what's being known, knowing what's being known, and effort, which is abandoning what's not helping and cultivating what is helping. And then when those come into sync, when that work is being done and done more and more continuously, then concentration happens. We can't actually do concentration without mindfulness and right effort. So con uh, concentration, in a way, is the blooming. When mindfulness and right effort is humming along, then concentration happens. And that's that unification of mind, that beautiful balance of mind that allows us to learn about the nature of the mind. So I'm going to save the last 15 minutes so we have time to check in with each other. Uh, Kai, would you open a couple windows and maybe somebody over there could just crack them open? It feels a little warm in here tonight. So it would be nice, as I said at the beginning, for people to share a little bit about how you're practicing or questions you have about the practice. What comes to mind? Yeah, Helen. Um, last week I, I was able to watch that want to be mine. Um, I had two full tests and I wanted to do well on it. And I felt how tight I was all week long. And uh, I, because I could feel that tightness and I was so aware of that tightness, that ouch, 
I was able to finally be more skillful and just say, all right, when we hold on too tightly and want something too much, this causes this horrible feeling. So if we let go, not totally, but I was, <laughs> you know, was letting go somewhat, yeah, yeah. that I got that balanced feeling. And um, it was moment by moment, working with it because it's such a habit in my mind to, you know, to be kind of driven that I had to watch it and play with it all day long. Yeah, yeah. Because if we stop noticing it, then it will reemerge. And because we're not aware when it reemerges, we won't be aware that it's not helping. And we'll get identified. Because unconsciously, out of habit, we're going to think it is happening. But when we're really mindful of it, then wisdom can work. You know, Then the memory of having tracked it and seeing how it made things tighter, that will be there too. But if we're not mindful, we lose that discernment. And we just believe it. Because from an unconscious point of view, when some attitude arises, presents itself in the mind, it's just taken more course. You know, I should see, I should use this attitude. You know, we never question it unless we're mindful. Okay. Thank you. Sure. But when I did get caught up in it, and I was just, you know, going with the energy, um, at times I couldn't slow it down. So I would say, okay, I would just say yes to it, and that felt better. I could go with the energy and just be ambitious. Yeah. Is that okay, too? I mean, because I knew that it would take a lot of force to slow this train down, so I just said yes to the energy and said, I hate this energy. I said, okay, we're not going to hate this energy. We're going to say yes to it and let it just... And I could feel a little bit of relaxing in the body when I was able to say yes to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a question of how skillful can we be. Hating it probably was more toxic than just understanding it. And, you know, when we're, (laughs) excuse me, being swept along by a particular attitude or with a particular attitude, don't stop practicing because maybe it isn't toxic. You know, so watch it. So either we abandon it because we think it's not helping, or for whatever reason we don't abandon it. But either way, mindfulness should continue. So when we abandon it, we should see: does the mind become more easeful? You know, because that was the whole point of abandoning it. Or if we don't abandon it, does the mind become more tight? Right. But I see how my wanting to be more peaceful. That creates suffering too. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I can keep that peacefulness even with the ambition kind of going on in the background if I don't let it get carried away. But once it's carried away, it's better. Then I have this another desire of being peaceful, which causes suffering. Yeah. So I have to kind of let go of that too. Yeah, yeah, sure. We use the desire to be peaceful to beat up the desire to yeah. be successful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is how our mind is. So this is why we have to track. And and it really helps us to discern what craving is. So the craving to be peaceful isn't any different than the craving to be successful. It's craving and it's tightness. And so by, you know, in, you, in your example, Helen, of just letting it move, then that might have been the most skillful thing you could have done in that moment because in that moment you had a neutral relationship with what was moving. You weren't craving something, like craving this to be gone or identifying. You were just letting things move. So, and this is, and this is how it teaches us something, too, about how to transmute, to transform negative attitudes. 
we shouldn't assume that the way to deal with negative attitudes is to stop them. I mean, this is a basic lesson in life. If you're a parent, you know, and your kid's going this way and you don't want them, often it's not best to stand in front of them, you know. Often it's best to be right alongside them, right, and then talk to them, <laughs> you know. But they don't see you as someone saying no. They see you as saying, oh, what you doing? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Have you thought about this? You know, so we call that, in, in educational language, we call it, you know, redirecting. We're redirecting. And we can do that with our mind, too. But to just sort of be the, the parent, no, you know, it just, it's meeting negativity with negativity. And things just get tight. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Other thoughts come to mind in your practice? Yeah. Hi. What's your name? Karen. I find that I tend to want to show up only under certain circumstances, conditions that I find appealing. So there's kind of a dullness and a tendency to get bored. Like I don't want to just, you know, have mundane thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> but then if some absurd chance happens, I have my perfect conditions that I'm craving, then I can't fully really show up because I'm so used to kind of avoiding the circumstances that I am in day to day. Yeah. So you understand a lot already about that tendency in your mind. It's so important to get to know the predominant attitudes that reappear all the time. You know, whatever, maybe there's four main ones or there's ten main ones that appear in our mind pretty regularly. But it's really important to get to know them. You know, whether it's defensiveness or greediness or just sort of a, a low-grade irritation or rage. But it's important to very quickly recognize them. And instead of thinking, like we were just talking about with Helen, that I've got to stop it because they're bad. Whether you stop it or not, the point is to learn in terms of cause and effect. So if there is an attitude, let's say you mentioned, uh, Karen, that sometimes there's sort of a dullness or a boredom um, because the experience isn't, dull, uh, isn't exciting. So then if that's actually the attitude, then if it's for whatever reason not making sense to abandon or change that attitude, then just be mindful of knowing with boredom, you know, knowing the breath with boredom, knowing whatever it is you're knowing in your meditation practice or your daily life, but keep noticing the effect of knowing when the mind is colored with boredom or colored with not caring or whatever, however you might describe that attitude. And if it's truly a negative attitude, then by definition, you'll start to notice how it sets in motion stress or suffering. And that itself will start transforming things. It's not seeing how our negative attitudes lead to suffering that keep us coming back to them. If we actually see how negative attitudes or unskillful attitudes cause suffering, the abandoning can't be stopped. So track it. And because sometimes we abandon things prematurely and then we haven't really seen why it doesn't work, how it leads to stress. And so it's more of a reflexive, you know, Mark says that's bad, or the Buddha says that's bad, or, you know, I think that's bad. 
in sort of a, a sort of an aversive reaction to the negativity. But really see in our bones, oh yeah. And then then the the motivation is really coming out of compassion. I mean we the mind cares. It doesn't want to set emotion stress, so it will do something different. It will try something different. Yeah, but see, that's also an attitude. Doubt is an attitude. So you want to notice if that's helpful, doubt. In Buddhism, we think of everything pragmatically. So don't just assume that things are there and will always be there. I mean, everything came because of causes and conditions. So everything can change. That's the positive thing. It doesn't matter how, you know, messed up, so-called messed up our mind is, because it has been created and anything that... Be- has been created can be changed. Are we and the, and this is the right time to start. <laughs> Do you know? So just keep noticing the different attitudes, notice the consequences of those attitudes, and you have other attitudes, not just boredom, you know, not just doubt. So look at those other attitudes. And there will be, you'll see that it's actually a relatively easy step to those other attitudes. You probably already have some wholesome attitudes. They may not be as strongly conditioned as doubt is or restlessness is or boredom is. But we do have positive attitudes. And we'll learn how, once we see, start developing our intuition, this is not helping, we'll just sort of take a step. Maybe the step will be compassion. And then the compassion will allow for, like, energy, you know, to do something else. But uh, we don't want to give up because that's a bad attitude and it has consequences. And if we see that, it's like we get, well, giving up doesn't make sense. The idea that it can't be changed, you know, that's just just one more attitude, just like uh, uh, thinking... You know, my parents are to blame. You know, that kind of aversion or judgment isn't functional. It doesn't help. So it's not about right or wrong. It's about this pragmatic understanding of what's actually skillful and abandoning what's unskillful and cultivating what's skillful in the mind and really owning the responsibility. Like nobody else can do this work. We are the only one that can do this work. We have to see directly the mind that's knowing and how it's colored and whether that coloring is helping or not, leading to peace or leading to stress. Thanks for sharing, Karen. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. Well, I, just a question. Um, I guess I'm, this is the first time I've heard you talking about intentionally abandoning. Intentionally? Int- intentional abandonment of, uh-huh. of things that we heard that are negative or cause, causes of stress. Um, and I wonder, just, I, I know for myself, I find that when I, when I put effort into ridding myself of something, I almost can kind of create a feeling of grasping. Yeah. Fixated on it. That, um, so I guess I wonder whether you're thinking, of, if, when you say abandonment, are you talking still about kind of noticing how it causes suffering and then kind of like a 
allowing yourself to let go of it, or is that a different action? Yeah, and this is the art, isn't it? You know, so that's why we say, you know, instead of effort, we say right effort or skillful effort, because we're talking exactly, making the point you're making that a lot of times effort is coming out of greed and aversion, and then it doesn't really work, even though it seemed like we had the right intention, you know, that the intention behind the effort was to help. But we're missing the point that the motivation is the active part of what we're doing. And so if we're hating something, and that's the motivation, then even though we're getting rid of, we think we're getting rid of something that's bad, we're actually causing something that's going to be stressful or difficult. So it's all about what works. That's what right effort means. It's what works. So don't turn effort into a bad word. That's what happens. Because our effort has been colored by greed and aversion for so long, we can start giving up. This is very common. That's why there's so much depression and uh, investment and distraction these days. Is because it's not that people don't want to be happy. It's that we've given up because our efforts haven't been fruitful. But our efforts haven't been fruitful because they've come out of greed and aversion. And we've gotten the appropriate results when you do things out of greed and aversion. So we have to have a different motivation when we take care of the mind. It can't be greed and it can't be aversion. And that's really what makes it challenging. And that's why there's all this emphasis on mindfulness. Mindfulness and the continuity where we're tracking things. Because then all of a sudden we start to get why that motivation leads to stressful results. And why this motivation leads to positive results. And if we don't get that, we're just going to uh, make effort in the ways that we've been conditioned to make effort, which is throwing our weight around. You know, We use aversion and we use greed to get us through life, but then we end up with this kind of a life, you know, in this kind of a world that's built upon greed and aversion. And then, you know, because of the pain of that kind of world, we get motivated. And what really breaks our heart, we get motivated to make the world a better place, but we're, we have the, we're missing this ingredient of clear moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness so that our motivation to make the world a better place, the only thing that can drive that change is greed and aversion, and we get the same world again. And then that breaks our heart. Then we want to give up. Then we don't mind watching you know, 20 hours of TV a week and you know, thinking that finding the new best restaurant is kind of the best and most appropriate use of my time and things like that, where we just fill our lives with distraction because really developing beautiful qualities, making our lives and the world a better place, it just hasn't worked, so we've given up. So the piece that really emphasized in the Buddhist tradition is this moment-to-moment -moment tracking of our experience so that we understand what actually is skillful effort and what is unskillful effort. Because it's very tricky. It's so counterintuitive, our conditioning, which is, you know, using that sort of blunt force of aversion and greed. But we have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two breaths.
and appreciating these wise teachings handed down by the men and women who have practiced before us. We can be grateful and willing to do our practice as best we can in our circumstances and to become part of the causes and conditions of wisdom, peace, and compassion in the world. So may this be so. And thanks, everyone. Thanks to Marta, our program host. She has a few announcements for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.